Hello, I'm Derek Walker, the pastor of the Oxford Bible Church. We're in a series on the book of Revelation, looking at how it describes future events in detail, particularly of the tribulation or the day of the Lord. And previously we saw that both Jesus in Matthew 24 and Paul in 1 Thessalonians 1 teach that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, starts immediately after the rapture on the very day of the rapture. Jesus said, for example, as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day, the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. So just as the worldwide flood fell on the very same day that the believers disappeared into the safety of the ark, so the tribulation flood will fall upon the whole world on the very same day that all believers will be taken into the safety of Christ, the ark of salvation, when he comes for us in the rapture. And that's confirmed by the next verses that say, then two men will be in the field, one taken, the other left, two women grinding at the wheel, mill, one taken, the other left, Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming, coming for you. Notice, he's talking about our Lord coming for us, to take us to be with him. That's talking about the rapture. Jesus also compared his coming in the rapture to the coming of a thief, coming suddenly to take the precious things, that's the believers, from the house, from the earth. Of course, Jesus isn't actually a thief because he's only taking what belongs to him. And if you've given your heart to Christ, you belong to Jesus. But to the world, it will seem as if a thief had come when, you know, a billion Christians suddenly disappear. For us, his coming is not the coming of a thief, but the coming of our bridegroom for his bride. And that's why Paul says in Thessalonians, you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, so comes, starts, as a thief in the night. And that's the coming of Christ in the rapture. So in other words, the tribulation starts with the rapture. For when they say, that's those in the world say, peace and safety, everything's going on normally, then sudden destruction comes on them as labor pains on a pregnant woman. And that's the start of the tribulation. And they, that's the world, shall not escape. But you, brethren, believers, are not in darkness. You're not in the kingdom of darkness that this day, that the day of the Lord, the tribulation, should overtake you as a thief. In other words, Christ's coming as a thief initiates the day of the Lord tribulation. But we don't experience that Christ coming as a thief. We experience him as the bridegroom coming for his bride. But for the world, it will be as if a thief had come and the believers suddenly disappear. But again, notice, he says that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Christ coming as a thief initiates the day of the Lord tribulation. And this is also confirmed by what John reveals in the book of Revelation. In one, Revelation 1.19, he was told to write the things which you've seen, that's the vision of Christ in chapter 1, and second, the things which are now, that's the revelation of the church age in Revelation 2 and 3. And third, the things that take place after this, that is, after the church age. And the transition to the things which take place after this happens at Revelation 4 verse 1, when Paul, sorry, John is caught up into heaven, raptured if you like, and he's told, come up 
here. And I will show you things that must take place after this. So that's the transition. Now we're in the phase, the new phase of time that is after the church age. So the events that he sees in heaven in Revelation 4 onwards take place immediately after the church age. That is immediately after the rapture. And what does he see? He sees the church glorified in heaven, represented by the 24 elders, singing of how they've been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb from every nation. Then immediately he sees Christ take the scroll with seven seals and then in chapter 6 he breaks open those first six seals. No time delay really. And those six seals release the birth pains, the ju those judgments on the earth um, that initiate the tribulation. So again we see that the day of the Lord starts on the very same day that the church age closes with the rapture. The first seal releases the Antichrist onto center stage, the rider on the white horse. And that agrees perfectly with 2 Thessalonians, which says the church is presently restraining the Antichrist and will continue to do so until it is taken out of the way in the rapture. And then the Antichrist is revealed. And that's exactly what we see in Revelation, that as soon as the church is raptured to heaven, the first seal is open and the Antichrist is released to rise to power. We then saw that after, from the start of the tribulation, when the first six seals are opened, that there will be an initial period of probably just a few months before the seventh seal is opened. And the seventh seal contains the seven trumpet judgments. During this time of a few months, God is saving and preparing the 144,000 who are going to spearhead the evangelism in the tribulation. When they are sealed and ready to start their ministry, then the seventh seal is opened in heaven and the first angel blows his trumpet. And that's in Revelation 8. We saw that this happens at the very same time that Israel binds herself to the Antichrist by a covenant. And that's the covenant that initiates the last seven years called Daniel's 70th week. And this is also the time that the two witnesses start their ministry of 1,260 1, days, three and a half years, based at the temple. And so their ministry covers three and a half years. That's the first half of Daniel's 70th week. During this time, they'll preach to the whole of Israel as Israel comes to their new temple. And they will be declaring that Jesus Christ is the true Messiah, who's already died for them as the Lamb of God. So while sacrifices are happening at the temple, the two witnesses will be interpreting them and saying, actually, these are just pictures of the final sacrifice of Christ. They will also be preaching the gospel to the whole world through the TV cameras, calling the world to repent, warning them of the upcoming judgments. In fact, they are going to announce each of the six trumpet judgments in advance, which is why the world blames them when they die for tormenting all who dwell on the face of the earth. Today, we're going to look at a closer look, take a closer look at the exciting ministry, the powerful ministry of these two witnesses in the first half of the tribulation that's described in Revelation 11. The first six verses of Revelation 11, they set the scene really by describing their miraculous ministry in the first half of the tribulation. The setting is the Temple Mount where their ministry is based. And it, the Temple Mount's been partitioned by now between the Jews and Gentiles. But that's going to allow the Jews to worship in their own temple on their holy place. 
Then I was given a reed like a measuring rod, and the angel stood, saying, Rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. But leave out the court which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. Because of this Antichrist covenant actually gives half the temple mount to the Gentiles and half of it to the Jews. So it's been given to the Gentiles through this covenant. The act of measurement that we see here symbolizes ownership and the right to use the place. So this is speaking of the start of the tribulation when Israel will have control of the temple and the right to worship there. Under this peace treaty, the temple mount will be divided between Jews and Gentiles. The outer court, where the Alaska mosque is, will be under Gentile Islamic control. And so Jewish worship at the rebuilt temple is reinstituted in the first half of the tribulation. The temple mount's divided in two. The Jews have their temple. The Muslims have at the Alaska mosque. Somehow the Antichrist is going to broker that. And so we see now the Jewish temple at the start of the tribulation will be able to start operating. And that's where the two witnesses are going to be based. Um, this will be made possible by the covenant that Israel makes with the Antichrist. Because Daniel 9.27, which introduces this covenant, also says that the Antichrist will break the covenant at mid-tribulation. And how will he do that? It's by invading Israel, taking over the Temple Mount, and stopping the Jewish worship at the Temple. It says, he, that's the Antichrist, will confirm a covenant with many for one seven, that is, seven years. In the middle of the seven years, he will put an end to the sacrifice and offering. That's him breaking the covenant. So the covenant had to be to do with the temple. And at the temple, he will set up an abomination that causes desolation until the end decreed is poured out on him. That's at the second coming. The fact that uh, Daniel 9.27 describes the breaking of the covenant in terms of his actions in connection with the temple proves that at the heart of the covenant is a deal that settles the issue of the division of the control of the Temple Mount. You see, the big sweetener for Israel in this covenant is that she'll have the right to have a temple on her holy place. And many Jews will see the Antichrist as a messianic figure because they believe that only the Messiah, many do anyway, believe that only the Messiah can restore the temple to them. The Antichrist will also seem to many in the world to be a saviour who can do what so many have tried to do but failed in the past, and that is bring about a peace deal in the Middle East. But his true nature will be revealed at mid-tribulation when he breaks the treaty, invades Israel, and takes over the temple. His Gentile forces will then oppress and dominate the old city, or East Jerusalem as it's known. And he, they'll dominate East Jerusalem for the last three and a half years of the tribulation, which is called the Great Tribulation. We see that in Revelation 11.2, but leave out the court which is outside the temple and do not measure it, for it's been given to the Gentiles. And they, the Gentiles, will tread the holy city underfoot for 42 months. These 42 months must be the second half of the tribulation, after Antichrist breaks the covenant and takes over the old city and the temple. Verse 3 it says, And I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so these two, 1,260 days of the ministry of the two witnesses are the first half of Daniel's 70th week. It's interesting that John 
distinguishes the two different periods of the three and a half years, the first and second half of the tribulation, by using two different ways to describe the same length of time. The first half of the 70th week, when the two witnesses have dominion over the temple, is measured as 1,260 days. Whereas the second half of the 70th week, when the Gentiles under Antichrist have dominion over the temple, um, is measured as 42 months. It's the same period of time, but described in two different ways. And that indicates two different time periods, even though they have exactly the same length. One refers to the first half, the other to the second half. So Revelation 11 describes the temple in Jewish hands in the first half of the tribulation during the time of the two witnesses. But the Gentiles will have the outer court. Then at mid-tribulation, the Antichrist will take over full control of East Jerusalem, including the Temple Mount, and so then the Gentiles will control it during the second three and a half years. It's during that it's during this invasion that the Antichrist kills, at mid-tribulation, that Antichrist kills the two witnesses, but only after they've completed their ministry of 1,260 days. Because until then, they're indestructible. It says, when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. He must overcome the two witnesses in order to gain control of the Temple Mount and stop the Jewish worship there and put up his abomination and turn it into a temple to himself. And then, and so gain the total dominion over East Jerusalem that verse 2 describes him having during the second half of the 70th week. And so this again confirms that the two witnesses have their ministry in the first half of the tribulation. Now some people see the third temple being rebuilt in the tribulation they see that in a totally negative light because of the idea of animal sacrifices coming back. And so they, called it, they call it disdainfully the Antichrist temple. But the scripture calls it the temple of God and the holy place. And that's why Antichrist's desecration of it is such a serious offence against God. God, in four prophecies, he owns it as his temple. And it is he that raises it up to fulfill his purposes, even though it only stands for a few years. It's in the plan of God, and he's going to use this temple to call Israel back to himself. Although it only functions for three and a half years, it has a vital role in Israel's final salvation, and especially through the two witnesses who will minister there. Since the destruction of the second temple, almost 2,000 years ago, Judaism has lost the revelation of the necessity of blood for the remission of sins. They've substituted it instead, a religion of salvation by works. And this restoration of sacrifices will point Israel back to the central truth of redemption that only through blood can you be forgiven, the blood of Jesus. These two prophets will use these sacrifices as a visual aid to point people to the ultimate sacrifice by witnessing to Christ and his sacrifice for them. They will declare that the sacrificial system was designed to point to the coming Messiah who would give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. And then they will proclaim that this Messiah has already come in the person of Jesus Christ. And they will support their message, God will support their message with miraculous signs and wonders 
including the ability to announce the, the trumpet judgments in advance. And ultimately, they will prove it by their resurrection and ascension after three days. They'll be preaching that Christ died and rose after three days, and God will confirm that by their own resurrection after three days, the sign of Jonah. The temple will also provide them with the prime location from which they can get the attention of all Israel and the whole world. All Israel will be coming to this new temple, you see. And as they're offering up sacrifices, the two witnesses will preach Christ and they will declare he's already died as the final sacrifice. And so these two witnesses play a vital role in calling and bringing Israel back to God and in the first half of the tribulation through their temple ministry. They're clothed in sackcloth, which means they are calling Israel, and in fact the whole world, back to repentance. Revelation 11, 14, 4 identifies them as a fulfillment of prophecy. It says, These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands standing before the God of the earth. And this is a reference to Zechariah 4, which prophesies a future temple in which two anointed ones fulfill an essential role in causing this temple to fulfill its role of being a light to the nations. Zechariah saw these two anointed ones as two olive trees supplying the anointing oil to the menorah, enabling it to shine its light. In other words, these two will be an essential part of the temple's ministry of being a light. Revelation 11, 4 says, the two witnesses are the fulfillment of that prophecy. And for they are both lampstands, it says. In other words, they are witnesses in their own right. And they are the olive trees that Zechariah talks about. In other words, they function as part of the temple ministry. They stand before the God of the whole earth. And that means their ministry is not just to Israel, but worldwide through the TV cameras. As anointed prophets, they stand in God's presence to receive his word and then proclaim it to the world. With the temple now back in action, God will use these two to remind Israel of the vital importance of blood sacrifice that she's forgotten. As I say, as these sacrifices are made at the altar, they will declare the gospel to Israel that these sacrifices are just pictures of the final sacrifice of Christ and that forgiveness has already been purchased through his blood. And now you can receive it by faith. By calling on the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. And so these two witnesses have a vital ministry of preparing Israel to receive her Messiah. Now why are these two witnesses allowed to preach unhindered in the temple? Naturally, the authorities will try and remove them. But verse 5 says that anyone who tries to harm them gets killed. It says, if anyone wants to harm them, fire proceeds from their mouth and devours their enemies. And if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this manner. Thus, they are in control of the temple. Their power is also shown in the fact that at the end of their three and a half years, Antichrist makes war with them, which isn't the kind of normal language you use for fighting against two people. Their ministry involves many outstanding miracles, as described in verse 6. It says they have the power to shut heaven so that no rain falls in the days of their prophecy, and they have the power over waters to turn them to blood and to strike the earth with all manner of plagues as often as they desire. So God empowers their message by empowering them to announce 
He confirms their message by empowering them to announce and call down judgments on the world. For example, waters turn to blood at the second trumpet, and that's described as one of the miracles that they do. So they call down the second trumpet judgment. And so the fact that they call down these trumpet judgments means that when they're killed, the whole world has a party because they blame these two prophets for all their troubles, all the judgments that's fallen. It says, then those from the people's tribes, tongues and nations will see their dead bodies three and a half days and not allow their dead bodies to be put in the graves. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them, make merry and send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell on the earth. So clearly their ministry has a worldwide impact. Everyone knows about them, uh, through, and that's through TV. They'll be regulars on the world news. This refers to the fact that they tormented everyone on the earth is talking about the worldwide judgments of the first six trumpets, which fall on the whole earth. And these two get blamed because they announce these judgments in advance through the TV cameras. Just like Moses announced to Pharaoh all the plagues upon Egypt. And then they happened. In this way, it says, they will strike the earth with plagues. They'll speak it and it will be done. Thus the whole world knew that these two prophets had called down all the judgments and so they rejoiced when they were killed. Now, I believe these two witnesses are Moses and Elijah. Let, let me give you some reasons for that. Their distinctive miracles bear the hallmark of Elijah and Moses. Elijah miracles are fire from heaven, protecting them, them from their enemies who try and capture and kill them. Have a check in 2 Kings 1. Second, the prevention of rain for three and a half years. It says they have the power to shut heaven so no rain falls in the days of their prophecy. That's three and a half years. That's just like Elijah, who stopped the rain in Israel for three and a half years to call Israel back to God. See that in Luke 4.25 and 1 Kings 17. And thirdly, they will ascend physically into heaven, just like Elijah did in 2 Kings 2. The Moses miracles are all kinds of plagues, especially turning water to blood. It says they have power over waters to turn them to blood and strike the earth with all plagues as often as they desire. And so that's exactly what Moses did with the plagues of Egypt. The special nature of their miracles, therefore, point to them being Moses and Elijah. Also, the convincer, as far as Elijah is concerned, is Malachi 4.5, which prophesies that Elijah must come to Israel before the Lord returns in glory to establish his kingdom. He must come to help prepare Israel to receive him for his second coming. It says, Behold, I send you, Israel, Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible or awesome day of the Lord. So Elijah must return to Israel before the second coming. So one of the two witnesses must be Elijah. And Jesus confirmed that in Matthew 17. It says, Elijah is coming and will restore all things. So just as John the Baptist played a vital role to prepare Israel for the first coming of Christ, so Elijah himself will prepare a vital role to prepare Israel just before the second coming. And so, if that's the case, we'd expect to find this mentioned in the very detailed prophecy of this time, the book of Revelation. And we do, of course, in Revelation 11, we see Elijah coming as one of the two witnesses. 
Remember, Elijah never died. He went up alive in a chariot to heaven. And that's for a special purpose, to preserve him for an end-time ministry. Although Moses died, Jude tells us that Michael came for his body and was opposed by the devil. So God took the body of Moses to preserve it for a special end-time purpose. He died in full health. And so both Moses and Elijah ended their lives on earth in an unusual way and in such a way that God was able to keep and preserve their natural bodies to be used again for their end time ministry. Moses and Elijah will give Israel her final witness to Jesus as the true Messiah and they will act as the personal representatives of the law and the prophets which together bear witness to Jesus being the Messiah. Also, only Moses and Elijah are uniquely qualified to be called his witnesses because they were literally that. They were present at the Mount of Transfiguration, Matthew 17. Obviously, God has marked them out for a special role. And they continue, they continue to be personally present to witness Christ's last days on earth. They, they witnessed his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. For example, after the resurrection, Two men appeared, it says two men appeared to the women in the empty tomb. And they talked to them as if they personally had witnessed earlier conversations that Jesus had with the disciples. We see these two mysterious men again witnessing the ascension. Acts 1, it says, while they watched, he was taken up and a cloud received them out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men, I think that's Moses and Elijah, stood by them in white apparel, and said, Men of Galilee, why stand gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will also come again in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. And so their description as two witnesses is most appropriate because they are actual eyewitnesses of Christ in his first coming. They will proclaim as true witnesses that Jesus died for the sins of the world and rose again on the third day. And this explains why their ministry is described as their testimony in Revelation 11. It says, when they have finished their testimony, the beast will kill them. So having fulfilled their time of ministry, God allows the Antichrist to kill them because he intends to provide a final confirmation signed to Israel and the whole world of the truth of their message because he's going to raise them from the dead after three and a half days in the sight of the whole world who are watching on and they they God is giving Israel the final sign of Jonah a resurrection after three days confirming their message that Jesus is the Messiah well I trust you've been enjoying our series on the book of Revelation I just wanted to make you aware that I've also taught all the way through the book of Revelation as a CD series. And here we have three CD boxes with seven or eight CDs in each of them. And it takes you all the way through the book of Revelation. So if you want some further study on that, this wonderful book, I recommend these CDs. Each, each CD box is 20 pounds, but if you get them all together, you can get a discount, all three of them, for uh, for £50 or £20 each. Thank you for watching. You can watch more of our teachings on our Oxford Bible Church Roku channel and Derek Walker YouTube channel. You're most welcome to join us at our church services which are every Sunday at 11am and 6pm at Cheney School, Headington, Oxford, OX3 7QH. You can order CDs, DVDs, books and other great products from our online shop at www.oxfordbiblechurch.co.uk 
or by calling 01865 515 086.